listening to the Coronavirus Diaries, Human Rights in the Age of a Global Pandemic, a series of online conversations with experts hosted by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. The Institute is Canada's leading think tank, working at the intersection of human rights, conflict, and emerging technologies. As we watch the global pandemic unfold, this series will look at what impacts the coronavirus will have on human rights, geopolitics, and democracy, and what role technology and disinformation will play. Welcome to the Coronavirus Diaries. Today I'm very happy to welcome um, Paige Morrow from Article 19. Hello Paige, how are you? Good, thanks. So, thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Could you basically introduce a little bit this, the, the work that you do at Article 19 and what it does in, in general and right now in particular? So Article 19 is the article uh, that relates to freedom of expression in the International Declaration of Human Rights. And we also deal with access to information. We're a global organization with about 10 offices worldwide across um, all of the continents except Antarctica. And my work is in the legal team is focused particularly on media and online media issues around elections and been doing some work now in the context of coronavirus around how the restrictions on freedom of movement have impacted on our rights to freedom of expression, particularly in the context of elections. Mm -hmm. What is the the, uh, subject I want to talk about today? Um, One of the main issues obviously right now is the problem of holding elections during a pandemic and we've seen you know, obviously it's, a, it's integral to uh, a functioning democracy and we've seen some countries postpone the election. A lot of European countries have postponed the elections, be it France or the UK, Italy, Spain, and even Serbia. But then we've seen countries like Iran just go ahead. And Poland also went ahead, even though they had already imposed restrictions on public gathering and therefore campaigning. So. What is your position on the way Poland handled this and why it did so? Was it political? And, you know, also how other European countries handled this and what was the kind of best solution? So our general position is that um, we encourage governments to choose the least repressive means possible. So public health is one of the valid uh, bases upon which the right to freedom of expression can be limited. But the measure needs to be proportionate. So in other words, there needs to be consideration of whether a less restrictive, you know, rule or law would have achieved the objectives of that particular policy. So in context of coronavirus, that means, for example, that if if we can slow down the spread of the virus through restrictions such as on through limiting public gatherings and closing down some shops, but still allowing, for example, some small protests to take place. So in, in Germany, for example, we just had a really interesting case from the constitutional court that said that even though there's you know quite restrictive measures in place around gatherings of people, if there is a request for a, a public protest, protest, which requires official approval, then that would needs to be assessed on a case-by-case basis. Mm-hmm. So I think this is a very balanced approach to how do we balance, like, how do we, how do we consider both the need to um, have, like, a clear framework for dealing with this public health emergency, but still uh, allow for right to freedom of expression and, and right to freedom of assembly. What was so the reaction in, in, in Germany about that? How did the public generally react? 
So the Constitutional Court didn't say that the protest has to go ahead. What it said, rather, was that this is not the restrictions on on assemblies of people should not be taken as a blanket ban on all public demonstrations. And following up from that decision, which was only came down last week, the local mayor decided to allow the protest to go ahead last Friday, but with um, very significant restrictions around number of people that could be involved and the length, and there would have to be, you know, social distancing rules observed. Mm-hmm. Um, so the commentary has actually been quite positive from what I've seen. The general sense is that it's not sort of allowing, of course, any sort of gathering to go ahead, but rather only in, in necessary circumstances. And actually the protest was specifically about the measures taken to um, in response to coronavirus. So very interesting sort of back and forth between uh, protesters and, and the state, I think. So going back to the question around elections. So what we've said with elections is starting from the position that any restrictions on freedom of expression should be proportionate and the least restrictive means possible. In the context of elections, um, we would we, what we've suggested in our public statements is that if the election is going to be scheduled within the period of confinement, there should be consultation with the key stakeholders. So that would include all political parties, as well as like the Electoral Commission um, and some stakeholder, public stakeholder groups. And that in some cases that might result in a delay. So the problem in Poland in particular was that the decision, the, first of all, Poland put in place very restrictive um, rules around uh, public movement very early on. They were one of the first ones to, to restrict sort of movement outside and, and shut down businesses. And then the, what ended up happening was that the opposition parties were really restricted in that they could no longer hold public gatherings, rallies, um, go do door-to-door campaigning, or sort of directly communicate with the electorate. And then the uh, general elections were slated to go ahead on May 10th. Mm-hmm. But Poland has not declared a general state of emergency, which would have in- entailed uh, an automatic pushback of the election date. And this in itself is actually positive because calling declaring state of emergency, if it's if it's unnecessary, if there's a lesser um, a less restrictive step that can be taken that we're generally in favor of that. So that's not the issue. What, what is an issue, however, is that the, cons- the opposition parties were not consulted on the decision to go ahead with the May 10th vote. And instead, what the ruling party did, so the so-called Law and Justice Party, um, what they've decided to do is hold it entirely by postal ballot. Again, this might actually in some context be appropriate measure, um, but in Poland, the infrastructure isn't there. And so the ballots would be automatically sent to voters last addresses but you know it's unclear whether this can really be organized appropriately in the next well now there's almost three weeks left to the vote and it will be pushed back at most until may 17th um so there's been it's been very hotly debated within poland and there's been real pushback from the opposition parties who feel that they've been neither consulted nor have they had an opportunity to sort of put in place the any sort of alternative campaigning methods that which would allow them to have Mm -hmm. uh, a voice and at the same time the governing party still has access to the media they're able to communicate with voters much more readily and so this is sort of perceived as um an attempt to sort of take advantage of of the fact that they're ahead in the polls. 
Yeah. So we've so what we've suggested as a response is that there should be consultation, and that in certain cases, um, a delay of approximately three to six months would be would be appropriate and is in line with international standards. There isn't sort of a international um, yeah, the yeah. international commentary on this issue has been pretty general, but um, but through, well, it, you know short delay would be appropriate. It's a it's a, an exceptional kind of situation, and mm -hmm. and I mean it's the same. Um, in Africa, we've seen Ethiopia and Malawi kind of postponing the election, um, but there was criticism from opposition party because there had been no consultations. But then we also have Guinea who that decide to go ahead, and it, it seemed to have a political incentive just because they were trying to to pass a controversial amendment. So in in countries where the legitimacy of a government is already kind of questioned. I mean, in Ethiopia, it's a rather new government. How should countries and how should governments handle this? Is it just, is our consultations enough to kind of reassure the, the populations who finally had, you know, are able to, to vote um, so rarely, perhaps? Well, I think you touched on two important points there. First, it's like making changes to the election rules right before an election in the midst of a public crisis. And secondly, um, the need to create sort of just a general public confidence in the process as a whole. You know, in Poland, for example, the move to a postal vote also required a change in the election laws. And the um, Venice Commission, which is considered sort of one of the leading international bodies on issues around election law, they've said that there shouldn't be any changes in the six months preceding election. And that's to allow voters to understand the rules because there's always a certain process of of voter education, right? And that's um, very closely tied to the right to, to vote is to have access to the information that will allow me as a voter to exercise that right. And so the problem is if we change the rules in the weeks preceding election, I not only do I not understand how to vote, but I also perhaps start to question the process and the legitimacy of the rules that are being taken um, about how to, to carry out the vote. And so that's, I think both of those are, are real issues here. Yeah, um, obviously postponing an, an election may sound kind of very anti-democratic, but holding an, ele an election during a pandemic might also lead to a question of legitimacy, how many people will actually come to vote and risk their lives, which is a question we saw in the US and Wisconsin, for example. And at the same time, you know, in a healthy democracy, elections are a time to discuss a wide range of topic. I mean, but the problem is right now, the main topic of discussion is, is kind of the pandemic. How will, do you think, how will democracy suffer um, whether or not countries hold elections? There seems to be no winner in this. It's whatever you decision you, you take, there seems to be an, an impact on our, on our democracy at the moment. Well, there's definitely a certain level of public distrust with the information that they're receiving about the coronavirus itself. We've really put forward a strong position around the need for very clear public messaging and sort of a clear response to it. As you say, conversely, delaying elections can be problematic as well. So in the UK, they made the decisions to push back the local elections by an entire year which went against the recommendations of the Electoral Commission they had and the opposition parties, they had all suggested six months. And so there was sort of a concern that maybe this was to try to give time for the 
ruling party to um, improve their position in the polls. So there's always this sort of jostling behind the scenes around the timetable and the timetable itself is a really contested part of the process. And that's why it's so important to have clarity about how it's being organized. Even now in the US, there's, um, Trump is now talking about pushing back the date of the American elections, which again is very controversial. Yeah, it's very controversial. I think it's really problematic to push it back particularly given that it, he, they, they have so much time to organize it. it it's really, I think it's really it's only appropriate when there is a public health emergency. And as you say, voters may not even go to the voting booths, which is what we saw in the recent, they did the first rounds of elections in France and Germany. Mm -hmm. um, and there was issues there where voters didn't feel comfortable. They were trying to imp impose social distancing rules, but it's really difficult for them, especially when there's long lines um, to get it's really hard to sort of just the logistics of it end up being very challenging but for the case of American election um, it's if they're willing to do it there's still a, there's still a chance to have some absentee you know some kind of voting exactly. system and I know there is a lot of debate around that even now in the United States because some parties are not necessarily for it but yeah I mean we'll have to see another subject I want to um, touch upon and something that you mentioned is about I mean your organization is very concerned about the presence um, of misinformation online uh, and perhaps also many you know the rise of kind of conspiracy conspiracy uh, theories online and offline which is you know we've seen that quite a lot recently what is the role of freedom of expression freedom of the press and access to truthful information and facts uh, during a, a pandemic especially but during emergencies in, in in general i think there's a huge distinction to be made between the information that's being pro provided by um, authorities that are linked to the states so either elected officials or or also like the whole sort of health apparatus um, versus what is being spread by just individuals on the internet, mm -hmm. on social media. It's important to provide individuals with authoritative sources of information and to point them towards it. However, there's no obligation under international law to provide for, there's no obligation for me as an individual to, to hold a truthful opinion or to, you know, if, if I and my private communications with my friends um, happen to believe something that has been declared untrue by the World Health Organization, there's, you know, that's certainly part of my, my right to freedom of expression. However, that's not to say that I have a right to a platform. So what we would distinguish between is, you know, if I share, if, or if I hold certain um, beliefs which are objectively untrue, then that's my right as an individual. However, perhaps those views should not be amplified. So on social media, you know, there are, we can certainly downrank some information. However, what we find problematic is how social media have been used, the reliance on algorithms. So, you know, as you're aware, there's been this whole debate around um, sort of outsourcing, particularly in coronavirus, because the moderators were um, not, well, just given both the influx of misinformation, as well as the fact that moderators were unable to physically go to work, um, there was an increasing reliance on automated um, treatment of information, which led to a lot of correct information being taken down from Facebook. I think it highlights the challenge around it, right, where we lose the context 
So if you rely on keywords, um, then of course you lose when there's satire or, um, or when actually like there's a debate, a valid debate happening online. And so there, what we would say is that then in that case, you really need to make sure that you have a very robust process um, for appealing decisions that are made and that uh, there's transparency both around how the decisions are, are made about what content should be removed or downranked as well as how the how the appeals are being carried out. Mm -hmm. And I know um, you guys published a, um, a kind of briefing about on how kind of states and, and the media and, and social media companies should, should handle this and should combat mm -hmm. COVID-19. And I'll, I'll share this, we'll share this online, but can you give a brief summary for parts of this? I mean, you already kind of started talking about it. That briefing came out of concern with increasing sort of borderline hate speech that was we were seeing online, um, particularly against minority groups in mm -hmm. Asia, but which became, it ended up being a much broader briefing that dealt with the right to, of access to information and, um, and how to address misinformation both online but also in traditional media about the need for so going back to this question around how it's so important for there to be proactive disclosure of information in a timely way <clears throat> and to ensure that there's um, that the information is being disclosed in multiple different formats and also made accessible for those who have perhaps lower literacy skills or are not conversant in the dominant language so minority languages we're also doing a bunch of work on like specific cases as well. So we've addressing um, as particularly issues have been coming up. So a bunch of countries have been adopting or either adopting or um, transferring existing laws that targeted misinformation and are now using in the context of coronavirus to uh, shut down on dissent as well. So we've seen that a lot in Russia, for example. We, we spoke about, we spoke about Russia with, with, um, someone who's who's based in, in Eastern Europe as well, and it was um, fascinating in a way. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, I'll share all your briefings and research on this um, uh, with our with our listeners. Good luck with your work, and thank you for everything that you're doing. I know, especially now, access to information and knowing what to do during elections, it's absolutely vital because you know democracies whatever is happening now are kind of suffering in a way uh whether you have an authoritarian government or a democratic government you know we we've we're all staying at home and obeying you know social distancing and physical distancing so uh, your work is important thanks so much for the conversation and looking forward to continuing it in other formats